Let me welcome you to, uh, uh, to tonight's event. Uh, thanks very much for coming to join us. Um, uh, and a very warm welcome to, to David and Nancy Guthrie. Thank you, Thank you. for coming to be with us uh, for this event this evening. Um, I'm, I'm going to obviously ask David and Nancy lots of questions in a bit, but let me just first uh, explain a bit, of, bit about things tonight. My name's Steve Midgley. I'm the, the senior minister here at Christchurch. Um, and uh, well, the way we're going to organize this evening is um, mostly just a conversation between um, David and Nancy and me here at the front. Uh, but you, you'll see some of these little slips of paper dotted around, um, maybe one within, within range, I hope. Um, and if during uh, the course of the evening and the things that you hear David and Nancy talking about, um, you, you, a question comes to mind that uh, you want to ask, there will be an occasion to ask later on. And you can just do that. We'll, we'll have a little bit of a free-for-all uh, when people can ask. But I know sometimes it can be a bit intimidating to ask in a big crowd like this. So if you want to scribble something down on a bit of paper, we'll take a short break a bit after 7 um, and, and gather up any questions that people have scribbled down. And um, if at all possible, we'll try and get through those as well um, and answer some of those um, for you here at, here at the front. Um, David and Nancy, welcome again. Um, I should you. say, David, you're not, you're sort of off your sickbed, really. Um, <laughs> we've, we've dragged you off your sickbed to, to, to come and speak this evening, and you, you, your voice may or may not survive. That's true. Um, <laughs> so thank you for... So forgive me in advance. And um, yeah, if you ask a really difficult question, that's the moment at which my voice will fail, and I'll have to... <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great, thanks, honey. Shrewd. I, li- I quite like that. Um, um, well, the obvious place to start is uh, to invite you to tell us a bit about yourselves, um, where you're from, and, and, and what you do. Uh, we live in Nashville, Tennessee. Anybody ever been there? Yeah? Yeah? A few? Yeah? Then you know why we never want to leave. We love Nashville. Um, you probably know what is at the heart of Nashville, which is the music business, right? That's what brought us to Nashville. David worked in the um, music business. He still does. Uh, What brought us there, he was head of the print music area for Word Records and Music, a large Christian music publisher, and he was there for 21 years. Um, I'll let him tell you what he does now. Uh, So we live there in Nashville. Um, My days consist mostly of working in my home office until one of my friends texts me and says, will you meet me in the, want to meet in the park at 10 minutes? We live near a beautiful park system there in Nashville. And um, we we go to a small church, believe it or not, smaller than this one. Um, we, We have a really old building, which seems really funny to tell you that our building is really old and it was built in 1849. Uh, this probably doesn't go very far here in Cambridge. That just seems like the newest of all, newest um, kind of construction here, doesn't it? But we meet in a building that was built kind of in the American Civil War era. Uh, miss being there with our church family today, but we are really grateful to be with you. Thanks. I, I um, am still making music. Uh, I have a little company. That, uh, in fact, it's so little... Little is in the name of our company. It's called Little Big Stuff Music. Uh, And a friend of mine uh, and I create uh, something that is is not really a thing 
here, I don't believe. It's a big thing in the States and in Canada, and that is uh, we create uh, performance musicals for primary age children in churches and uh, Christian schools. And so uh, we, uh, we write these things. They're fun and funny, and yet uh, we're trying to uh, encapsulate big Bible ideas into fun little performances uh, that kids can uh, put on. And so we, we do that on our own. We uh, have a great time at it. And for the last couple of years, my uh, 28-year-old son, Matt, uh, works with us also doing that. So he's holding down the fort at home while we're gone. Here. Great, great. Um, just a little, little something about faith. Is that Christian faith has always been around in your lives, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how did that? No. Where's that feature? Yeah, I grew up in a home. My father, my grandfather, was a Southern Baptist preacher, and I grew up in church every time the doors were open. Um, came to what I believe was a genuine conversion when I was about eight years old and grew up in the church, went to a Christian college. Um, I would say, though, that, you know, um, you know, we moved to Nashville. At that point in my life, I was, um, I was so busy for God, you know, doing all of this. I worked in Christian publishing. I had a career in Christian publishing. And, um, and we were very busy in our church. And, but I felt in many ways like a huge hypocrite mm. because I wasn't really talking to him through prayer. And I wasn't really letting him talk to me through his word. And uh, I, I felt like a huge hypocrite. And I knew something needed to change. And it was when we moved to Nashville and I committed to this, what I, I perceived at the time to be a really high accountability kind of study. Like there, they actually expected me to do my lesson every week, which I thought was a lot to ask. And to actually be there every week to discuss it, right? Which I thought was a lot to ask because I had a lot of important things to do, right? Um, but that changed my life, you know, that being in God's Word so regularly like that, it was very yeah, transformative yeah, to yeah. me, changing me from a person who felt uh, very churchy, you know, to someone who's, who felt like God was at work in my life through His Word. And that, and that's that's in you know, your mid twenties, something like that, or yeah, late twenties, late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, yeah, early thirties. <laughs> David, go, go, tell us a little bit. Yeah, about so it. when I was a young child, um, I don't have re- well. I have a memory of going to church once or twice a year, and um, that was uh, that was all I knew about God. All I knew about uh, religion, faith. Uh, it, w- it really wasn't a part of our family's life. And when I was six or seven, uh, my parents uh, started going to a little neighborhood Bible study. And uh, through that, uh, all I knew at that time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I just knew our, our family life changed a good bit. And it was fairly dramatic. And my parents... Um, uh, their behavior changed in many ways, and I don't need to go into all that, but uh, their outlook on life changed, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I could tell that there was this new um, faith in God that didn't exist before, and there was the, uh, the Bible as God's Word meant something new in our life. And uh, so one of the results of that is that, that uh, we did end up going to church every mm-hmm. Sunday, mm-hmm. and... Um, but later in my teen years, it was really the, the leaders of the youth group 
that I was a part of in my little church that had the biggest influence on my life. And they were the ones I wanted to emulate. And uh, so, and I grew up in, a, in an area pretty hostile to Christianity, actually, in uh, the northwest of the United States. And in my school, it was very progressive. And, um, and so, um, you know, because of the influence of those people on my life, I, I uh, ended up, as I graduated high school, went to a Bible college. And uh, I didn't really know where that would lead, uh, career-wise or vocationally. I didn't think I wanted to be a missionary or a preacher. But um, I, I knew I wanted the Bible. And so uh, that led me there. And really it was um, from that that I've you yeah. know, moved yeah. to what I'm doing now, and, um, and, it, and it also, when Nancy and I ran into each other, um, when we were both single, uh, there were many things that we immediately realized we had in common, and uh, that, that was one of them, an outlook on life that said, um, we don't have all the answers, but um, we put our faith in uh, the one who created us, and, um, and in fact, when I proposed marriage to Nancy, I used uh, uh, a verse out of a psalm mm-hmm. sa- that says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Uh, let us exalt his name together. And what I thought that meant was uh, we were both uh, involved in music, Christian music, and we sang and we liked, you know, uh, I thought, oh, that's what that means. We'll, we'll link up and we'll have this beautiful expression to the world of how great it is to be a follower of Christ. And we've done that, but it was really the magnifying, I think, came when a different kind of magnifying glass <laughs> came over our lives. And uh, that's, I know, what we'll talk more about. Well, yeah, let, let's, let's come to that now. Because, um, so, you know, what have we, we've, we've titled tonight, um, uh, Loss, Grief, Keeping Going, um, in the midst of all of that. Um, and we're talking about that because of a particular experience, um, very particular to, to the two of you. Um, can you, can you tell, us a, tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So David mentioned we have a son, Matt, who is 28. When he was eight... I gave birth to a daughter that we named Hope. And um, when Hope was born, it was a, um, she had club feet. And the doctor who delivered her said, well, don't worry about that because we can put casts on that, take care of that. He said, but, you know, I think you're going to want to have uh, the pediatrician take a good look at her when he gets here tonight. And so he did. He came to our hospital room, and he brought with him a little, uh, him a little piece of paper on which he had made a list of what he called a number of little things that weren't quite right with Hope. Uh, Hope had a real large, soft spot. Uh, she had a flat chin and some extra skin on her neck, and her hands turned slightly out. She was very lethargic, so she wasn't moving much. She wasn't crying much. She wasn't holding her temperature. And he said, you know, a lot of times when there's a lot of little things wrong, they actually add up to something more significant. And so I want to have a geneticist from Vanderbilt Hospital come and examine her. So he came the next day. And that night he came to uh, my hospital room. And he told me and David that he suspected that Hope had a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome, which we'd never heard of. You probably haven't either. 
And it meant that she was missing a tiny subcellular particle in every cell that you and I have in every cell of our bodies. Um, And this cell is responsible for uh, getting rid of the toxins of long-chain fatty acids. And he explained, because she was missing this, that basically those toxins build up in all of her cells and all of her systems. And he told us that night that uh, actually a a lot of damage had already been done to all of her major organs, including her liver and her kidneys and her brain. And he told us that there was no treatment and no cure and that most children with this syndrome live less than six months. And uh, I remember David crawled up in the hospital bed with me, and we cried. And, and we cried out to God uh, the most unceremonious prayer I think we've ever, ever prayed, which was simply, God, help us. Um, we, don't know, we don't know what to do with this, and, and, and we want to trust you in this, but we don't even begin to know what that's going to look like mm. or how to deal with this. And... Um, so the reality of Hope's life, um, Hope couldn't suck or swallow very well, so we fed her with a tube. Uh, she couldn't see or hear or respond because of so much damage done to her brain. Um, and so in many ways, her life was very difficult. But we would also have to say to you that her life was such a great joy to us and I, I, I always feel like when I talk about her that it's probably easier for you to imagine the difficulty and the sorrow of it than it is for you to imagine the joy of it. But it was truly there. Um, hope brought a richness to our life. Uh, you know, there's, we might talk about living one day at a time, but you kind of don't do that until you're forced to, and we were in a sense forced to because every day we didn't know if that would be her last. We kind of didn't know how bad things would get before mm-hmm. she would die and... Mm-hmm. And just the reality uh, that she was going to die was uh, very significant, very real, and honestly, for me, very fear-producing. I, um, and Nancy, did, did, so were you, um, as you know, in those first weeks, uh, Hope was in hospital? Um, uh, just, how, how long was her stay in hospital? Yeah, you know, we stayed there a week, and I don't really think it was for her as much as it was for us to learn how to care for her. Okay. And uh, kind of them waiting... Um, it's complicated, but there's only one hospital in the United States at the time who could process the testing to confirm the diagnosis. And she was born on Thanksgiving week, and so it was lots of delays. And so they kind of didn't send us home until we had that diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. But, but honestly, I think, yeah, uh, you know, Hope's like, we took her everywhere, and we didn't spend a lot of time in the hospital. So, so them, having said, them having said there's no, there's no treatment, there's no cure, right. um, did, did that then mean that that there wasn't lots of hospital visits, and um, or, or were there? Yeah, that is true. There were no, there were not a lot of hospital so we put visits. The um, and we knew um, that, uh, yeah, in a, in a way, the her condition was um, was easy for her parents to to care for her because um, she was very still, very you know quiet. And um, as she got older, three months or so, she began to develop seizures, and that was uh, more challenging. That was difficult to see and, and to learn how to work with. But um, we were grateful that we could take her home and live with her, and she could live with us. Um, we had a lot of 
people who came around us and were a great encouragement uh, to us. A lot of people who brought meals and that kind of thing. And um, I, I'm not sure how Nancy knew to do this right from the beginning, but um, we realized having this child with this mysterious fatal syndrome was very scary to people, and they didn't know what to make of it. Um, we had one group of, um, you know, strong Christian believers over here that said, well, don't worry, we're going to pray and she'll be healed. And then there were other people that I think they felt like, uh, we better stay away, maybe it's catching. And <laughs> so, and people didn't know what to do, but um, so, Nancy's... So people were, you know, the, you, you were hearing that from people saying, we're going to pray, she's going to be healed, and, oh, and yeah. people spoke yeah. to you in that, in that kind of a bold, straightforward oh, way. Yeah. Yeah, and it was very interesting. I mean, I'm, uh, as a Christian believer myself, I uh, pray for people who are mm-hmm. ill and um, uh, for them to be healed. But uh, it just somehow seems so clear to us in this case that the fabric of her being caused her to manifest all of these symptoms. She wasn't yeah. a healthy baby, otherwise yeah. sick. Um, you know, she had a, a metabolic uh, foundational mistake, <laughs> if yeah, you will, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the way that her body was was made. Mm-hmm. And so um, we didn't spend a lot of time pursuing, um, you know, either miracles of faith on this side or medical miracles mm-hmm. over here because yeah. uh, that is an incurable condition. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, although we struggled with it every day, we didn't just complacently accept this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we struggled with it every day. But we also realized her life's going to be short, so let's not miss it. You know, so let's see, enjoy yeah. her as much as we can, and let's, um, we've been called to be her parents, and let's parent. So you're going through these early months um, with the anticipation that, I mean, that the death could come Kind of, kind of any day. Mm-hmm. Was, was that the, was that the sense of it? Yeah. That's what you'd been led to understand. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're enjoying her being there, being part of your mm-hmm. family as best you can, knowing that each day could be the last. Yeah. And and what happened? Yeah. So I mean, because of that, every morning when I woke up, um, you know, she actually sh- slept in a little bed right next to our bed, and um, so you know, I would look. Because it, literally, we knew any day could be the day that um, she w- was no longer with us. And um, then as we began to feed her with the tube and give her more seizure medication, we also had to we had a feeding machine that went during the night. And so I got up one night in the middle of the night, went over to check on her and uh, realized that she was cool. Her body was cool. And uh, so I knew she was gone. And I just went over and woke up Nancy. And again, it wasn't a shock, um, but it was shocking yeah. uh, because I don't know how anyone actually prepares for for that. Yeah. But um, we knew it was coming, and I woke up Nancy, and we uh, we woke up Matt, I think, or mm, tried, to. Yeah, yeah. tried to. <laughs> yeah, tried yeah. And, and this is, and, and at this stage, Hope was six. six yeah, months, she was six, six, months, six months old. Yeah. I'm sorry, at that, yeah. at that point, which is what they told us was the average that we could expect. Yeah. So, you 
both knew that you were carrying recessive gene uh, for, for this. Well, um, we knew after we had a child. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have a yeah, child with yeah. this syndrome. We must both be carriers of that yeah. recessive gene trait, which would mean that whenever we have a child, that child would have a 25% chance of having okay. the fatal syndrome. Okay. So um, this, though, wasn't the end of the, end of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, you had... You, you, you had the, the sadness of Hope's short life and, well, the joy of her short life, mm-hmm. but then the sadness of, of, of her death um, to, to deal with. Um, but the story doesn't end there. No. It just I mean, t- it did mean, it mean we had a really difficult decision to make about whether or not we would have more children. Okay. And honestly, that wasn't easy for us um, because we did value Hope's life. And so we didn't think that if we had another child who was with us just a short time again, that that would be the worst thing in the world. But also our lives weren't just us. I mean, Hope was kind of an event in our church. <laughs> and, um, but more than that, I mean, there was our son who lived in the house for six months waiting for his sibling to die. And then in the house longer than that with a really sad mom and dad. And, and then above that, then there was our parents And as hard as it is to lose a child, I think sometimes it's doubly difficult for a parent to watch their child lose a child. child. Because parents like to be able to fix things, you know. And this was nothing our parents could fix. And it was devastating to them. And so we decided to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. And a year and a half after Hope died, we discovered that that hadn't worked. And discovered that I was pregnant. Uh... That was shocking, (laughs) to put it mildly. And so, um, you know... So so at at that point, so you've you've done what you can, kind of surgically, to make sure that you wouldn't be able to conceive again. Um, But nevertheless, you have. You know that there is a 25% chance that the baby that you're carrying uh, is going to have Zegvela um, as well. Uh, Were you able to find out? Yeah, uh, we, you, we had remembered that the geneticist who diagnosed Hope, she, he had said to us, now don't take any permanent birth control steps because we can test very early. Yeah. So we understood he was saying, and you do too, right? You know, we could test and terminate the pregnancy yeah. should it uh, go that direction. Um, and I was glad to know that there, we could test early, you know, but... We, our sense was we knew we would continue this pregnancy either way, but that it would really be helpful to know which way it was going, especially before we shared it with our son and with our parents and with our, the rest of our family. And so actually the day I found out I was pregnant, called him and just found out, okay, you know, I had to wait eight weeks to go through the testing, and then we had to wait another three weeks for the results. And then finally that day came that he called, and he said, I've got the results. He said, you're going to have a son this time, and he is also going to have the fatal syndrome. So it was, it was different that time to go through the whole pregnancy knowing that we were going to have a child who was going to die. It was, it was awkward a lot, you know, like we'd show up somewhere and, you know, I, I, I'm pregnant and we'd, we, we'd interact with someone who knew we had had a child who died and they'd be, oh, this is so exciting. Oh, I see you're going to have another child. And, and we'd be standing there kind of thinking, are we going to tell them? 
We can yeah. really ruin their day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to just be able to say, yes, we are so excited that this child also has Elwick-Ward syndrome. And so he'll be with us just a short time, too. And it's really hard for other people to recover, you know, in that to, to conversation. And, and you're in a bizarre place there where you're looking after other yeah. people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Can I just... Uh, Kind of a quick pause there. I, I'd, I'd love to try to explain, although I probably it, it's not explainable. How you and you may be wondering this: how we could say at that point, well, Hope's life was a blessing to us, or you know, we we enjoyed her, knowing really from the day after her birth that she was dying, and um, and I, I can't adequately explain it, but I think you need to hear kind of why um, we have some of this perspective as we're looking at now having another child. Um, you know, I think we're in our culture, we're so results-based. It made me realize when Hope was little and we were caring for her, feeding her, uh, you know, giving her all the medication she needed for the seizures, bathing her, all those things. You know, I think it made me realize for the first time, you know, when we did these things with Matt, our first child, so much of it had the future in mind. I want to take such good care of him now because I want him to be healthy and well-adjusted. And, you know, I want to give him the best opportunity in life and all of that. And so um, with Hope, that equation did did not apply. Um, Things we did for her and with her were not for the far-off future. Um, and s- strangely, there was there uh, uh, mixed in with the sorrow of knowing that she was going to die was a, was a lot of joy and satisfaction, gratification on our part to be able to parent this one who needed us so desperately. So, um, if uh, following you, somehow. Am I getting this right? It, it sort of drove you into living, living each moment richly, um, because of because it, it wasn't sort of this was this is we're living tomorrow. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, what we had. All we knew we had was that moment or that day. But also we knew that um, whatever we were uh, engaged in was not for some future result. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. for that moment. Um, at the risk of uh, the risk of being insensitive here, um, I, I kind of, uh, and you're, you're beginning to answer it, I suppose. I mean, there will be some who will ask the question: You know, was it was it fair for you to for you to continue with this second pregnancy, knowing that knowing that this 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 son was going to be born and you know it was, it was going to be a short life and yeah. you know does, does that mean he's going to be suffering isn't isn't the kind well, thing to, to terminate there, well, there would be people who would who would think that way certainly well first of all we've been assured by uh hope's doctors that she didn't suffer i think that was part of the nature of the brain damage done to her um but to to say fair i don't, I don't know about that word right i First of all, I, I just, um, to us, this was a gift God had given us and that we were to be stewards of and to trust the Lord with mm-hmm. that, and not to take it in our own hands to determine how long his life would be, but to trust God yeah. 
for how long his life would be. You know, similar, like I, I, I had re, I rem, with Hope, I remember we were just a couple of weeks in, and I went upstairs to what was supposed to be her nursery, and I'm, I sit down in the rocking chair to rock her, and I, I, I begin to, I think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and I, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to give her as long of life as possible. I thought to myself, I've been so generous to God to accept that her life's going to be short. I mean, how good of me. Um, but I here's what I am going to ask. I'm going to ask, okay, God, extend her life as long as possible. And it's like I'm gearing up to formulate that prayer when all of a sudden the thought comes to me, well, what if a longer life isn't better for her or for me, mm-hmm. even though that's what I want? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I just had this sense of like, could I, could I trust God to pray differently, to say, God, I want you to give her the life that you intend for her. And could I trust God that he actually knows what's best for her and for me? And so that changed my prayer that day. I remember changing the prayer, not asking him to give her a longer life, but instead saying, okay, Lord, would you give me the grace to accept the number of days that you give to her? that you deem are right for her and for me. And so I think similarly for yeah. Gabe, here was, the, I mean, when you, we, di- we didn't think, I mean, there, there's a human element to this in terms of how pregnancy happens because we do get how all of this works, right? Um, but then there was this sovereign element. You know? I, in fact, I remember saying to David that night uh, when I found out I was pregnant, I, I thought about Joseph. Do you remember in, jo- in, in Genesis 45, uh, Joseph is with his brothers, and they're so afraid he's going to blame him mm-hmm. for it. Um, and he says to his brothers, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. That's a fascinating statement. His brothers sent him there on a very human level, right? They sold him off into slavery. And so, and it's not that Joseph doesn't think that's true or hold them responsible for it. But at a much deeper level, yeah, yeah. he sensed, no, God has done this for his good purposes. And I think we felt the same way in this pregnancy. We understood the human element of it. And yet we say, okay, God is at work. And if he is at work, he's at work for our good and his glory. And so let's seek to trust him with that. So you, I want to take you in, into the into the moment of, well, not to the moment, but you, so you've, you've had two children, um, both of whom have lived short lives. So yeah. we've, we've sort of, yeah. we've, we've cut Our son Gabriel so was Gabe, born, Gabe, yeah, and his and life he, was very much like Hope's similar. life. Yeah. Uh, she lived 199 days and he lived 183. Yeah, it's very similar. Tell us a little bit, if you could, about um, what the experience of of, of this loss was like, the, the, the grief that you felt, um, how you know, it was similar for the two of you, different for the two of you? Because th- these are devastating losses. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, wow. I think anybody in here who has experienced a loss like this, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about just the missing that person, the deep empty place that's left the quietness that's left behind once the hubbub of the funeral is over, Um, the deep disappointment. I, I mean, when people ask me about my experience of grief, I, that's, that was the biggest thing for me. I, I, I had looked forward for years for having a daughter and that 
you know, went by so quickly. And I, I felt so disappointed not to have a daughter to raise and enjoy and to be my friend in my old age, you know. So uh, there was that, you know. With grief, there's just the reminders of what you don't have everywhere you turn and mm. you don't want to make all your interactions with people who do have that, you know, about your loss, but you can't help but see it everywhere you turn. And uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm the kind of person, I remember thinking during our life that since we knew she was going to die, I, I, I thought to myself, somehow I'm going to get ahead of this thing. And I've had some time to be sad during your life, so maybe the grief's not going to be so hard and heavy after she dies. Well, that is a joke. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you don't, it's not like there's a certain amount and you get ahead of it, you know, and you do it. And for me, uh, uh, grief just settled in like such a heavy cloud for so long. I was just so deeply sad. I, I felt so full of so many tears that needed to come out. And... You know, for a long time, you know, just any time I got in the car and I drove long enough to be alone with my thoughts for a while, I would begin to weep, you know, and have to dry things up and settle things before I went in wherever I was going. And so for me, uh, grief came out with a lot of talking about it, mm -hmm. processing it, and, and a lot of tears. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um... Well, I know, you know, one thing I would say is that it, uh, grief is, um, it's a tsunami. It, it is, um, you know, I, I think before I experienced loss, the loss of a family member, I, I'd never been there before. I didn't know what it was like, but I observed other people who had lost spouses or children or parents. And um, you think you kind of know what's going on. They're very sad. And then, you know, you... If if they're um, if they're handling it well, you well, think uh -huh. that after a couple weeks or you know or a couple months certainly <laughs> that they're going to you know be back on their feet and they're going to be okay. Yeah, and um, you know what you don't realize until you're in that grief experience is that it's it's monstrous. It's it's too big to manage or handle, and and it affects every part of your life. So. It affects your work, you, you know, you can't concentrate, or um, one of the things I remember so vividly is going back to work a couple months after Hope died, and uh, we had some early morning meeting at the office, and everybody gathered in there, and, and uh, I, just a few minutes in, I just thought, what in the world are we doing? You know, this is, who cares, <laughs> whatever the topic of, of the day was. I really did not care at all because, um, you know, and, and so you just have to, you know, you're, you're constantly being faced with the reality that life just keeps rolling for everybody around you, and it kind of came to a screeching halt for you, hmm. and, um, and, and it generally just, uh, it's there a lot longer than we think it should be, and then it kind of comes back in waves, mm -hmm. um, and, and it affects things like work, but it affects uh, your relationships. Um, you know, there, we, we lost some friends through that process because they were lousy friends. And, <laughs> I was going um, to ask you a little bit about that. But we gained did, did, other friends. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. yeah did, both. <coughs> did, did the experience... Yeah, for, for some people, I guess, the experience of, of, of 
two such traumatic losses could could just sort of turn you in on yourselves and and kind of you know you, you don't want to see people you don't want to go out um, but I, but I guess that'll vary from person to person but then if you do go out and you do you know you go to your church um, you see some of those friends um, they say things that are really helpful or they say things that are really unhelpful mm-hmm. can you say a little bit about about your experience of that did yeah. Did you want to, to be with people? And mm. when you were with people, how, how did they do? I remember uh, sometimes I've said that after Hope died, when I went to church, I had two big fears. One was that everybody would talk to me about Hope. And the other one was that nobody would talk to me about Hope. And they were both... Very much. And so if you think about that, how does that set up your church family? It's like they can't win, right? <laughs> Which in some ways is so unfair. Um, but mostly, yeah, I, I, I would say to you, most people who lose someone, th- their greatest fear is that that child, sibling, parent will be forgotten. So for you to say that person's name, that's like, a balm to your soul. It's like, oh, you haven't forgotten. You haven't forgotten my sorrow. You haven't. What it says is that person was valuable enough that I would have the courage to bring him or her up and, and, and valuable enough that I wouldn't assume you're just over it like that because that person mattered to you so much. Um, you know, in terms of, of our experience... So, so, so Nancy, on, on balance then, you're saying, yes. you know, that, that the failure of people to dare to speak about Hope uh, and Gabe was the, was the bigger failure. Far than... more hurtful for someone to never bring it up like she never existed yeah. than yeah. to stumble into something. And, okay. And, okay. And, and, but I also have to say to you, you know, I think I, I, we had the benefit, this sounds crazy to say benefit of going through it twice. I mean, my first time through, I, I really kept score on everybody. I was very aware of who had said something, who hadn't, how they did with it. I think my posture toward people was kind of like, what have you got for me? You know? Like, let's see what you, you know. You, you, and um, I had very high expectations for everybody and how they would interact with me. And I was also deeply hurt. And I struggled for a long time after Hope died with a lot of resentment toward people that I had to work through. Uh, inviting God to his grace would overflow in me toward other people. But when I mean had the, had the benefit of going through it twice, I think the second time I did better mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I had learned some things the first time around. And I think that allowed both of us to have, rather than a posture of, okay, like, what do you got for me? More of just an open-handed posture of, I don't expect you to have this to say, just come on in. Come on in and stumble into it with us. And here, hold hope, hold Gabe. And, and that, that was a sweeter time because we realized... <laughs> We gave people more grace because I think it, it, we realized, you know what? We never knew what to say to people about something like this before we experienced. So why were we expecting anybody should know what to say to us? And mm. I think it took us time to figure that out. We were able to extend grace more the second time. But, and the, the association between the experience of loss and feelings of anger yeah. um, are quite well written about. And, and, you know, anecdotally, people talk about that. Um, how much of that was your experience? Do you think any of that kind of, come on, what have you got for me, mm. was, a, was an undercurrent of, mm. of, of some flavor of anger there? Um, Probably. I, you know, I, know, I think for me, 
it more it, it kind of came out sideways. Uh, meaning, I Nancy and I did together as a couple early on from the first days that Hope was born. You know, we really um, aspired to uh, rise to the occasion, to this calling, uh, to parent this little baby. And so, um, you know, on the big stuff, I think I did pretty well. I I, I wasn't uh, furious at God for inflicting this on us or on hope. Um, You know, I don't think I had big expectations of everybody around me, but um, what would send me, uh, (laughs) you know, really send me were all the little uh, mundane problems of life that I felt like now I should get a pass on those things. (laughs) You know, uh, the car breaks down or... You know, just any of those little annoyances that, you know, an appropriate response is a little frustration. For me, I would get, you know, mm-hmm. furious. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I realize that that's where that's coming from. It, it's, um, it's an expectation. It's what are my expectations of what I deserve in life and what I don't deserve. Yeah. And if I'm going to have this then I don't deserve all that other stuff. But, of course, that's ridiculous. I think I was helped in the anger department by, before going through this, having uh, been in some situations and read some books and done some study, to have realized that uh, I didn't come in. I think many of us, we have a shallow understanding of the Christian life. And we think of the Christian life of, okay, I get on God's team, and then he's on my team, and I pray, and I put in my order what I'm praying for, and as long as I'm, like, walking really faithful, then it's kind of his job to answer my prayer, right? And so if that's the way you think this life with God thing works, then when it comes around, when he allows something into your life you think doesn't fit with what a good God would do to a, with a faithful person... Well, then it's natural, I suppose, that you're angry with him. But I, I think I didn't go into this with this assumption. Yeah. And I, I recognize I'd, I'd been around long enough to see that that's not how God, that God's love for me is not defined by giving me a comfortable, easy life or giving me the, the life that I might describe as good. Yeah, but, but, but let me push you further on that, Nancy. Well, okay. You've, you know, the. Um, you're making me nervous now. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, there, there'll be somebody listening to that will say, yeah, okay, I, I'm with you up to a point, but okay. um, you've, you've had the experience of, of, of one terrible loss. Yeah. And then um, it comes around again. Yes. Um, you know... So my only... Is, is you know... D- See, this is a very modern God... Western view of the Christian okay, life that would say, I can only, God should only give me one hard thing. Okay. That's modern Western. In no other era of history, in no other parts of the world, do people think, okay, I only get one hard thing and then I'm free from there on, right? I mean, it's my instinct. I remember thinking it. In fact, you know, I remember when, while we were caring for hope, one day I walk out of Bible study and I called to check David stayed home with her every Wednesday. I called David, 
and, how's, and he didn't answer. I thought that's weird. So I called his cell and he answers. And his first thing he says is, we're all fine. When someone says we're all fine, we are not all fine, you know? Okay. And he said, uh, we're at the doctor's office, but not for hope. He said, Matt fell in PE this morning and broke off his front tooth. And I had to pull over because it just, it made me realize. I had this fear, like, like once one hard thing happens to you, and you realize that maybe all of your prayers for protection for God are not going to be answered in the way you think they might be in the here and now. And, and you realize, oh, so maybe I might go through something hard like this again. I mean, so that day I just remember taking a deep breath and saying, David and I, I mean, we talked around the kitchen counter when I got home that day and how we felt. And we, we were like, you know what? Everything we are and everything we have is his. And we just have to trust him with it. And he doesn't owe us. Um, a, but, but how do you hang on to the belief that he's good? Because, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say, God's sovereign, he's in charge, he's, he's, he's the big man, mm-hmm. um, and so everything's, hey. everything's under his charge. Hey. But, but you, you're trying in the midst of this to hang on to the notion that, that he's good. Yes. And that, and, that you, and that he's worth loving. You see... Steve, there's this thing called the cross of Jesus Christ. (laughs) So instead of, I I don't decide that God is good based on, look around at my circumstances. Do they meet my approval? So therefore God is good because he's been good in the way I would want him to. I look at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is the greatest, the, the cross is an amazing thing because we look at the cross and it is the greatest evil of all time. Could we say, you know, for humanity to nail the Son of God to a cross and put him to death, it's the greatest evil done of all time. And yet, at the same time, in its accomplishment of the salvation of sinners like me and you, it is also the greatest good of all time. Uh, the greatest demonstration of good. So I don't look at my circumstances to decide whether God is good. I keep being drawn to the cross where I see on the cross, Mm -hmm. Jesus has taken upon himself the curse that impacted all this world so that one day this world and even my genetic code that was impacted by that curse will be freed of a curse. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that David and I and you rightly deserve so that we know that the day is going to come when this life ends. We don't face eternal punishment that we rightly deserve because Jesus took that upon himself. Instead, we're going to get the all-satisfying, abundant, blessed life that Jesus deserved. And so that's what defines his goodness. And, and but I, I'm David. sorry, but I... I, I want to add, too, true, all that, <laughs> but uh, we can also uh, connect that to some of our own experience. You ask, how could we say God is good? And so, um, you know, Nancy and I look back on uh, the time that Hope was with us and then the days after she was gone, and uh, we could list for you a number of ways in which we were enriched. We were made better through that experience. Um, one of which would be uh, it just opened our eyes to how much people around us were suffering. And we were just oblivious to that. Mm-hmm. And um, only because of our suffering did people kind of open up to us about uh, their suffering and their pain. And so um, 
that actually was a really great benefit <laughs> to us. And so uh, we're, you know, we're, we're enriched, we're grown up some through that yeah, uh, process. Yeah. So I, I don't mind connecting that yeah. to yeah. your question, how do we still say God is good? And, and you said something, we, we're going to take a break um, uh, in a second, because um, we've gone on longer than I thought. Um, this first bit. Yeah, I mean, you said something really helpful when we were chatting earlier on, which was that, you know, the thing you've just described, you know, here's something that, something good that, 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 that has happened. It doesn't, it doesn't explain it. It doesn't say this is why. Well, but, it, but it's, is, is that how you would, is that how you'd say Yeah, I, I mean, we get into that conversation with people a lot. Um, people are going through similar things, and um, yeah, we have a natural thirst to know why, and um, but if we really get dr- drilled down into that, it's uh, why sometimes means I want to know the cause-effect relationship here. Uh, why sometimes means to what end, for what purpose. Those are di- those are really different aspects that uh, yeah. we really have to look at. Why. Uh, for most people, though, when we w- go through something we don't like, um, when we ask why, it's more like, um, okay, somebody explain themselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. somebody yeah. tell me why, why you did this to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, but why also encompasses um, for what purpose, mm-hmm. uh, to what end. Mm-hmm. And that's what... Uh, we were just talking about this. And some people think, okay, uh, if, if I really believe Romans 8.28, that God's called all things to work together for the good, for those who love him, they mistakenly think that means, okay, I, now it's up to me to figure out the good thing that God intended through this terrible thing, as if there is a one-to-one yep. relationship, yep. Yep. as if it can be defined, and is as if... Maybe there does something good does come out of it that you can identify. That doesn't mean that's why it's happened at all. Because that can really diminish a person's loss and, and simplify it. And besides, we read Romans 8.28 without 29 because actually Romans 29 tells us what the good thing is. It says that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So I think the greatest good that could come out of any of our suffering in our life is that God would use it to make us more like Christ. Mm-hmm. And... It, it, so when we know he's going to, if we're looking for something good, that's the really good thing. Now, we don't tend to value that. We want to see something out there. Oh, this person came to Christ or this relationship was restored. Well, maybe that will happen and that will be wonderful. That is not a necessarily direct relationship to why it happened. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we, we're gonna, we will take that break now. Um, in case you're worrying, this is not two even halves um, of the evening. Um, so um, I think we'll, we'll take a five-minute break and then probably just, just sort of 15 minutes or so um, before, to, to wrap up by quarter to, um, quarter to eight um, in case you're worried about timings. Um, but if you, if you have... So we'll t- take, a, take a brief break. Um, if you have scribbled down some bits of paper, I think... Um, a couple of people are just going to whiz around now and just uh, grab any questions that uh, I've got written down.
going to jump back in, um, and I thought the um, I thought the first thing we might do. Um, don't worry if you're still getting a drink. Find your find your way back in due course. Uh, but just as people regather, um, Nancy, one of the things that you've done over these the years um, since Hope and, and uh, Gabe's Gabriel's time was um, right. Yes. You've written lots. Do you want, and, and there are lots of your books available at the back. Yes. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yeah, what's there and if people few. are interested in reading more? Yeah. Uh, this is just a few of them, people. Like, once I start talking, I don't stop, okay? Yeah. Uh, but I thank Jonathan Carswell. He's brought a number of my books back there, and I, I think maybe even more than these. But let me just run through a few of them. Um, Hearing Jesus Speak Through Into Your Sorrow. This is probably the book about our experience that's the closest to my heart. I work through 11 statements of Jesus that I think are often misunderstood uh, or misapplied that are very significant to those who are hurting. I wrote it probably about eight years after Hope died with the questions that I'd really struggled with. Things like, did God cause this or did he merely allow this? What does he really mean that he is the resurrection of the life? What help is that to me now? Um, how do I deal with people who have hurt me, who need my uh, forgiveness? Those kind of things. So that's hearing Jesus speaking to your sorrow. Um, I put together a book. I didn't write this book. I collected the writings of what I call old dead guys and not so dead guys, which I think they probably appreciate that, right? So it spans from little short pieces about God's sovereignty and suffering. These were the answers I was really searching for in the midst of that. So, you know, from John Calvin to Jonathan Edwards to John Piper, they're all here in these short little pieces. Be still, my soul. The one-year book of hope is a one-year daily devotional for people who are hurting uh, or grieving. This is the book. It's, ah, man, it's maybe 15 years old, but I, I still get the most mail from people who are helped by this, for, for which I'm really grateful. Honestly, it was my working through the scriptures about in maybe the one to two year period after Hope died that there were a lot of scriptures that I thought I had understood, but then after this experience, they didn't make sense to me anymore and I had to like try to refigure them out. And that's really what is there. Uh, what grieving people wish you knew about what really helps, what really hurts. Uh, David and I have done a lot of sessions like this, and we always get the question, you know, what should I say, what should I not say, what can I do that's helpful, and what do I want to avoid doing? And so I surveyed about 300 grieving people, got their responses on what was really helpful and what they wish people understood about their grief that they didn't seem to understand. So just a really practical book for you if you want to be a real help to those who are grieving. Uh, when I wrote the one-year book of hope, um, do you happen to know how many days there are in a year? Yeah, yeah. So let me tell you, when you write a 365-day book, you get to about 222, and that's like all you got, all right? And so when I wrote that book, I swore I would never write any more one-year books. I think I've written five more, okay? So one of them is this Dinner Table Devotions and Discussion Starters. It's a one-year book um, uh, to create opportunities around the table with kids, uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers, to talk about things that really mattered, the things of God. Um, and then most recently I wrote this one year praying through the Bible for your kids um, in parenting our young adult son. I came to the place where I realized I was doing a whole lot more worrying than praying and a whole lot more manipulating than praying and um, that I really needed to pray. And But I didn't just need to pray for what I wanted. I needed the scriptures to shape 
what I was praying for him, to pray for God to do the things he has promised to do and that I know he desires to do. So I worked my way through a one-year Bible reading plan and found something every day to create a prayer in which you can put your child's name in to, to pray for your child. And then finally, a children's book that I've written that Jonathan Carswell, who with 10 of those, published, for which I'm so grateful, he asked me to write this. It's called What Every Child Should Know About Prayer. And in this, uh, it has the most beautiful art done by Jenny Brake. Some of you will be familiar with her art. Um, But it has a number of sections on what prayer is, um, looking at people throughout the Bible who prayed and what they prayed about, what the Psalms teach us about prayer, what Jesus teaches us about prayer, that kind of thing. So that's a few that are there. Nancy, thank you. Um, um, So it's interesting that, I mean, you run out of steam at about day 222 on your, on your year-long devotions. I mean, the reassuring thing is that most of us who read them, I mean... You run out of steam out of... way back at, like, 96, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, that's very, true. Very few that's of us true. got through to the end. So, I mean, we, we, could, we, could, we could strike a deal. Um, one way, couldn't we? We could make it, a shorter one-year book. Good to know, though, that hers don't have dates calendar yeah. dates yeah. on them. So to reduce the guilt factor yeah, for when yeah, you've yeah, fallen that's, weeks behind. Yeah. That, that's very kind. Um, we appreciate that. Okay, um, so, so we, we, we only got a few minutes left. Um, the, the, um, l- pick up on that, the, the, what you were mentioning there. You know, what is useful, what is, what is unhelpful um, yeah. in, in yeah. relation to people well, who are Well, obviously I wrote a whole book about it, so I yeah. can talk about it all yeah, the yeah. time. But I, you know what, I can give it to you in four words. Okay. All right? Speak up, show up. Um, a lot of times we don't want to say anything. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Or we think, you know what? He or she looks happy today, and I don't want to make them sad. So I won't bring it up. But what you need to understand is grief is kind of like a computer program that's always running in the background. It's always running. And when you bring up their loss, it gives it them the opportunity to bring it to the front. Uh, maybe they shed a few tears and you've been to think, oh no, I did the wrong thing. I've made that person cry. No, you gave them the opportunity to release some tears and sadness that was already there. And they were just hoping that somebody would bring it up so they could talk about this person and this loss that means so much to them. And then show up, uh, you know, show up at the house, show up at the I don't know how you all do it. You know, we have a visitation. We have a funeral. Um, I often want to think, you know what, there's going to be so many people there. They won't even notice if I was there or not. You know what? On the lowest day of your life, you notice who stops everything in their world to enter into your sorrow. So that means a lot. And and to keep showing up and um, to be that friend who over not just the first couple weeks, but, you know, makes a note let me tell you what, uh, grieving people, they, their life is, becomes ruled by the calendar. They know the three-month mark and the six-month mark. When that one-year date is coming up, they're thinking about it. A great friend, let me tell you, the easiest thing you can do when someone you know loses a loved one, pull out this little calendar on our phone that we all have and write down, make a note on the, you think you'll remember, but you won't. Right? So you, you make a note on three months and six months and a year and two years and a day or two before, you just write them, I see this day is coming up, and I just want you to know that I'm thinking about, would you like to go to lunch? You want to go for a walk? You want to get some coffee? Or you just want to be alone that day? Maybe you just drop off a little flower on their doorstep, something that says we haven't forgotten. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a, um, I've just been handed a very small number of what I saw was a much larger number of questions. Oh, sorry we can't um, get to more. So I'm hoping that these capture 
um, you know, capture uh, some of that have been asked. We'll try to answer short. Okay. Um, um, I think a number of people want to know about Matt and how you helped Matt to, to through the experience of these losses. Who says we did? Yeah. Uh, we don't know. Sorry, Matt's I mean, eldest yeah. son. Yeah. We done. have a son, Matt, who's 28, and like all of us, he's a work in progress. And um, so we don't have anything to compare to. In other words, we don't have another child that we raised up through age 28, and they didn't experience the death of two children. And then we had this one, and he did. So his life is his life, and we, all, uh, we incorporated him into everything. He was um, eight when Hope was born. Um, so he was a little eight-year-old, just, you know, kind of an only child up until that point, and trying to figure out life. So we don't know if we did this right or not, to be perfectly honest with you. We just, we tried to incorporate him. We didn't shield him from what was going on. We tried to keep it appropriate to his age and maturity level, but... Um, Sorry to not have a good answer yeah. for that one. I think it. we did sense a couple things. First of all, we think, and this is true for all things in parenting. It's a bad day when you figure out that your kids are more likely to follow your example than what you tell them to do, is it not? And um, I think the same is true with grief. You know, we get so worried about what we're going to say to our children. They're watching us. And yeah. so, yeah. and they're following our example and they pick up from us. Is this something to be angry about? If you're angry, they'll probably think this is something to be angry about. If you're hopeless, yeah. our, our, our family is now broken and we're never going to be the same again. We're never going to have joy again. They pick that up or, or they probably also pick up, wow, this is the hardest thing we can imagine, mm-hmm. but we're going to trust God with it. And we're going to believe that he's going to heal us. He's going to do a work of healing in our lives and in our family that they probably yeah. pick up yeah. on that. Yeah, that's really uh, helpful. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take you on to another question. This is, uh, um, uh, I think, I think a number of people have asked this, um, the hardest thing is when the innocent suffer. Um, uh, and it doesn't matter what we as parents go through, and, and I guess the implication is how, how we process it, how we make sense of it. Um, but you know, there's two um, tiny babies, innocents. Um, where is the good in that? The good in yeah. their suffering? I don't think I look at their suffering and say there's good in that. Uh, I believe God is good in even our, all of our greatest suffering. Um, for me to have assumed to have ended their life somehow prematurely, that that would somehow save them from suffering, uh, I don't believe that was the case, you know, for them. Uh, I suppose, I mean, I, I don't know, because I, I, I've just got this one question. Right. And, um, I, if I'm trying to guess into the, um, intent, yeah. into the intent behind the question, you know, is, isn't God good? Doesn't he do good things? Yes. Even, even in tough situations, he's doing good things. But where's the good for, um, for hope? Where's the good for Let me um, tell you what. Hope in Gabe's life was very short here. And we are so focused on this world. <laughs> And David and I, I've heard David say this a number of times, we had the opportunity to usher our children into eternity after a very brief time. 
I, I, I can remember holding Hope just a week or two after she was born. We were at the Christmas program. And I was sitting there, and I, was, I began to think about all of the things that she, I would never get to experience with her, you know? Like, I, 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 she would never be in the kids' choir up there singing. And all the things she, I would never, in, we'd never go on a mom and daughter shopping trip, you know? And I just start thinking about all these things she would experience. But then I thought, oh, she will never experience being left out. And she won't experience adolescent acne. And, you know, all, all, there, there are a lot of things that are really difficult to living in this world. It is not a tragedy to have a short life here, even if it's painful. Um, there's only one tragedy, and that is to, in this life, not become joined to Christ that, that, that is a tragic life. But we believe that in his grace, God has taken hold of Hope and Gabe, and they have entered into eternity before us, and their life is full and joyful and peaceful, and, um, and one day we're going to join them in that. And so we don't look at their lives as a tragedy, but we think we were blessed to have the opportunity, and they were blessed to actually experience a very short time in this world that's been so impacted by the curse and to be ushered quickly into the presence of Christ that is all light and joy and peace. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Nancy. Um, quickly, I, I, I'm just struck. that uh, That's not a bad question to ask and to keep asking. Right? I'm just struck with... Uh, the fact that the psalms, the psalmists um, yep. spend a lot of time asking, uh, I mean, not politely asking, <laughs> you know, kind of shouting yeah. that same question directly at God. At God. You yeah. know, why yeah. did the evil prosper yes. and how long will the, yes. you know... It's you one of the unusual things about the Bible, isn't it? That, is, it, that, yes. it, that it does it almost sort of... Um, in an insolent way, seem to ask questions of God. It's like, and it's div- the Psalms are God's divinely given words for us, yeah, yeah, meant to yeah, sing. Yeah, so yeah. he's not challenged, right? He, he's not uh, unhappy with us saying how long and, and why. Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't think he expects that we necessarily come to all the answers to that in this life. I don't he, think we have, but I think we can come to peace <laughs> with him in this life. Here's something more practical. Um, how, do you manage, how do you manage grief when life doesn't stop? used to have a family to cook for, washing to do, uh, kids' homework to help with, husband, um, busy at work. Um, how do you, you know, how do you fit in uh, grieving? You look for time and space to be sad and let out the tears. And, um, yeah, I, I, and at, in the beginning, it's like you don't have a lot of control, I think. Grief has so much power at the beginning, and it sweeps over you, and you can't say no. As time goes on, and as the Holy Spirit does a work of healing in your life, I think you gain more power uh, to be able to say, not right now. (laughs) You're going to sit on the shelf a little bit, and I'll come back to you later when it's convenient time. Um, I think early on, maybe you don't have as much of that, but as time goes on, you get the ability to be able to have more... that. it has less power over you, perhaps. You begin to gain a little bit more mastery. It's not that it completely goes away, mm-hmm. but that sometimes you are able to say, okay, now I've got time and space for this. Let's think about this and let me release some of it through some tears. I don't, is there a thing here? Is grief share here? 
Do you know what I'm talking I, about? I haven't well, heard then, of that. Never mind. Is, is that just me? No. It's a it's a a small group program for people who are hurting or grieving. Not here. Okay. No. Never mind. Um. <laughs> it is here it some is places. Here. If no. you go to griefshare.org and you see, I say zip code. I don't know what you got, your postal code. Post whatever code. you say. Postcode. Yeah, postcode. Yeah, yeah. Although in international, I think maybe you just put in your city. Like if you typed in Cambridge, if there are any churches who host a grief share, it's a 13 week program for grieving people to come. They watch a video that we're the hosts of. And, um, but the, the biggest benefit is just being in a group with other people who are going through grief. It's a safe place to let out your sorrow and share that with other people. There are loads more really good questions here. Oh. And there are even more at the back. Oh. Um, but I did say we were going to finish a quarter two, so I'm, I'm going to hold to that because, um, uh, yeah. Um, um, I, well, I, I thought it would be lovely for people to, to see okay. um, Hope uh, and Gabe. So That's there we hope. Go. That's Hope. You know, um, we, t- we took that picture the week before she started having seizures. And you know what? We never saw her smile. But somehow that photographer captured what looks like a smile, and it's very sweet to us. So that's, that's three yeah. months old? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a picture of Gabe as well? <laughs> Gabe, his little birth announcement. Can you see how beautiful they were and easy to love? <laughs> very lovely. I want to say thank you very much. Thank you we, we so could, much. We could have gone on for another couple of hours. Um, there's so many questions that people have asked. I've got loads bubbling away in my head uh, that I'd love to ask you. But um, thank you for um, being willing to speak openly about painful things. Um, I know you've done this um, in all sorts of ways, uh, and it's been a blessing uh, for lots of people. So um, thank you for, again, blessing us tonight by being willing to share uh, hard things and making us think um, about how uh, we might respond um, and how we might help others. Um, should we give him a round of applause? Would that be, would that be good? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, David and Nancy have recently flown over from the States, so we're not going to let them, we're not going to let you have them here for too long before we scoot them away and get them some more rest because they're going on uh, to speak at a conference uh, during the coming week. Um, but, but you'll be around for, oh, a, for a little to. bit. Yeah, um, he might, don't let him cough on you, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are some books available at the back. Um, as it happens, and we hadn't planned this, but it's the way it's worked out. In the mornings here, um, we are, um, uh, we're, we're working our way through John's Gospel, and we're in a passage that you mentioned earlier, I'm the resurrection and the life. Mm. Um, uh, so we'll be thinking about that next Sunday morning, uh, which too will speak into um, death and loss and grief um, in particular ways in the experience of Jesus' life. So uh, if you want to join us for that, that's uh, 9.30 and 11.15 uh, next Sunday morning as we think about um, how Jesus interacted with a grieving family. Thanks for coming tonight, um, and uh, thank you again, David and Nancy. Thank you. Thank you.